Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 13. I'm just going to read the whole chapter, Genesis 13. I'm reading from the ESV. Um, you can follow along in whatever translation you have. There are lots and lots of wonderful English translations, and we're not pretentious about the ESV. That's just the one I have. All right, starting in verse 1, Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. So we talked a couple weeks ago about how an encounter with the God of glory sparked the faith of this man, Abram. And it's what sparks our faith, an encounter with the glory of God. And now today we're going to see how experiencing the faithfulness of God over time sustains our faith. And to do that, we're going to look at the three characters in the story. There's really just three characters. There's Abram, there's Lot, 
not to be mistaken for the main character, who is God. So we're going to go in that order and talk about Abram, Lot, and God. And here's why all of this matters. Here's why the story matters, or at least one big reason. Because if we're going to follow Jesus as Christians, we're going to be called to do some things that feel really risky. So we need to know that Jesus is safe. We need to know that when God says, you have to turn from me, turn to me and repent from your sins, and it's going to feel like death, we need to know that Jesus has got us. When we're called to follow Jesus in the way of self-emptying humility, it's a place of vulnerability. We need to know someone's looking out for our interests if we're to give of ourselves for others. We need to know whether or not following Jesus is safe. And my prayer for us this morning is that through this text, by the power of the Spirit, we will get such a glimpse of the faithfulness and glory of God that it puts all of our fears to rest and we can just run with Jesus in repentance and run with Jesus in generosity. That's what I'm praying. So let me pray now and ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Father, I admit that I bring nothing to the table here this morning. Um, And so I'm asking for your help communicating your word to your people for the glory of your son. Um, So would you do that now? Open our hearts and ears to receive your word and unite our hearts to fear your name. Help us to love you more, to follow you closely, and give us the power to turn from our deadness to life. For the glory of Christ. Amen. All right, so let's just dive into point number one. This is Abram's journey back to God. From the beginning of chapter 12 all the way through what we just read, chapter 13, the whole story, you may have noticed, is anchored in geography. So if you were to take a yellow highlighter and go through your Bible and highlight place names and directions, it would be mostly yellow. North, south, east, west, left. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. Shechem, Bethel, I, etc. This place, this whole two-chapter section is covered in geographical, spatial terms. So Abram, if you'll remember back, he's called from, this is opposite for you, he's called from Ur over here, and he goes up to Haran, and then down to Shechem, and then down to Bethel and Ai, and then the text says he goes down to Egypt. It's actually not down, it's that way, but we'll talk about that later. So he goes down to Egypt, right? And we find out in that journey, he's supposed to be Shechem, Bethel and Ai, these are the land of Canaan. This is the land that God promised to him and asked him to go sojourn in. And then again, we saw this last week, Ryan showed us how he went down to Egypt and it was actually a journey away from God. It was a journey away from faithfulness. It was the road of doubt. So Abram must have thought something like, you know, I know God asked me to be in this land, but there's a famine now and I know God also wants me to be alive. So I'm going to take this in my own hands and I'm going to go to Egypt where there's plenty of water and therefore plenty of food and I'll be safe. It felt like um, the way of wisdom, but it was the way of doubt. 
And because of his doubt of God's character and ability to preserve him in the land of famine, he got into some pretty nasty situations. Because of his self-reliance and God doubt, his wife ended up in a, the harem of Pharaoh. So the, that second half of chapter 12 is about Abram's journey away from faithfulness. But what we just read, chapter 13, is the story of his journey back. Back to God. It's the story of Abram's repentance. It's the story where we see Abram's small, new faith start to grow and be strengthened by God. And this story is also anchored in geography. Verse 1 says, Abram went up from Egypt. It's signaling to us that we need to still pay attention to the place names and the directions. It's also signaling a a backtracking, isn't it? Uh, He works his way backward. He retraces his steps back to faithfulness. He goes to the spot between Bethel and Ai again, and then goes up north to Shechem again. So we'll talk about that sort of down and up shape in a minute. But first, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the catalyst for him going to Egypt in the first place? Why did he go? He got to the land, he was faithful, he was obeying God, and something changed where he went. And what changed was famine. Circumstances got hard. It's easy to feel like our faith is robust when things are good. But when famine comes... There's a layoff when your car breaks, you can't get healthy, you have your sixth ear infection, whatever. It's a test. We feel tested in that. So that was the catalyst, the famine. So he leaves, goes to Egypt. So when we get back to the land, the question is, are we still in famine? Well, verse 6 says, the land could not support Abram and Lot dwelling together. The land itself, in this moment, had not enough natural resources for two groups of herdsmen. That's not actually a lot. Uh, And in verse 10, Lot chose to go to the Jordan Valley for one reason. It's well watered. In contrast to all the rest of the land that Abram and Lot were wandering in. In other words, the famine is still going strong. There is not enough water in the land to sustain this growing family. Now, it says the Canaanites and Perizzites were in the land at that time. So uh, why does it mention that? Well, they were doing all right because they had cities. They had dug wells. They had irrigation systems. So these ridgetop wanderers, though, from Chaldee didn't have wells. They lived off the land. In other words, if the difficult circumstances hadn't changed, what did change? that Abraham would come back from Egypt? What did change that he would journey back to God? Does that make sense? Here's what changed. You'll notice that there's some symmetry in this journey. Shechem, Bethel, I, Egypt. Egypt, Bethel, I, Shechem. What happens right in the middle point? You know, if the shape is like this, something happens at that pivot point where everything changes. And it's the one action of God we get in the second half of chapter 12. It's in verse 17. Um, This is a Bible verse you can memorize easily. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh. (laughs) That's probably more to the verse. But that's the heart of it. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh. 
That's what happened. Why does that matter? Because back in Genesis 12, at the beginning, God made Abram a really important promise. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. In other words, if someone acts, Abram, to your disadvantage, I will turn the tides against them because I've got you. I've got your back. And so even though Abram had doubted God, even though Abram had pawned his wife off as his sister and it didn't end up well for her, even though Abram was faithless, God was still faithful. Pharaoh had worked to the disadvantage of Abram's family by taking Sarai. The text uses all the words from Genesis 3 and intensifies them. So just like Eve saw that the fruit was good and she reached out and took it for herself, so the princes in in Egypt saw that Sarai was very beautiful, an intensification of good, and they took her. They took her to Pharaoh. But God had Abram's back. Faithless or small faith Abram experienced the faithfulness of God. And that's when everything changed. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. For For God to enter into a covenant relationship with somebody and not fulfill his side of that obligation would be to deny the godness of God himself. He will not do that. And that's what changed. The circumstances were still difficult. Abram was still walking back into a land that terrified him because he didn't know if his future was secure, but he had a clearer view now of the character of God. He had an experience of the faithfulness of God. So I'm about to use my dog as an illustration. And it occurred to me that if I were paying him royalties for every time I do that, (laughs) I'd be broke. And I wonder what dogs spend money on. Um, So Greyfriar, half of you know Greyfriar, the other half you'll meet him. Gray is, um, we leash walk him outside because our yard isn't fenced in. So when he needs to go outside for obvious reasons, we put him on the leash and we, you know, whatever. But sometimes it gets cold out and I don't want to go outside (laughs) and the kids don't want to go outside. And so I open the door and I test his allegiance to me by letting him out free. And he usually does pretty well, but sometimes he'll see a squirrel or an unsuspecting neighbor jogging by (laughs) And then all bets are off. He just takes off, right? He runs. So I'll stand in the door and I'll call him home. And eventually he'll stop and he'll turn and he'll look at me and he'll just stand there at a distance. And I can see his little wheels turning. And he's thinking, I think I've run too far this time. I think I've really made him mad. If I come back, he's going to punish me. So why should I come back? He needs to know his master is safe to come home to. Is the parable of the prodigal dog. (laughs) Why use a dog illustration when there's one in the Bible that works really well? (laughs) 
<laughs> Abram needed that lesson. You need that lesson. I do. Sometimes repentance will feel like death or it will feel so risky. You are going to need to know that God will not rub your face in it when you get home. That's what Abram was learning. So what did his repentance look like? What was the sort of shape of Abram's repentance? Well, two things really. One, it looked like obeying where he had first faltered, right? New obedience in place of disobedience. And two, he returned to the altars he had built at first. I think those two things are important. So let's just talk about them briefly. So first, Abram obeyed where he first faltered. God said, go to the land I will show you. And he, he goes, but then he leaves. He faltered in his uh, understanding and trust of God. So where he had disobeyed by leaving and trusting in himself, now he turns around and goes back. He turns from sin to God in new obedience. Repentance is never less than feeling sorry, but it's definitely more. If all we do is apologize or feel bad for the ways that we've gone against God or sinned against others, that's not repentance. Sometimes that just ends in self-pity. Repentance always includes new obedience. If it doesn't have new obedience, it's just not repentance. And his, his repentance looked deeper than just going back to Canaan. It also involves Lot. So Remember, at the beginning of 12, there's actually four go-froms and one go-to. Those are the commands. uh, Three go-froms and one go-to, pardon me. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. Abram reluctantly does all of those except for one. Go from your kindred. He brings his kindred with him. Now, I understand Abram's heart seemed to be, you know, Lot was an orphan, and we, we find out later that Abram loved Lot a lot, no pun intended. Um, so don't think that this was easy for him. It wasn't. Next chapter, you'll find that when a giant conglomeration of multiple armies comes and kidnaps Lot, Abram takes 318 men, not warriors, and goes after him on a rescue mission. Or when God says, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram knows his nephew's there, he stands in the gap between this wicked city and the angry, offended God and goes to bat for his nephew. He loves Lot, and he's still separated from him because he loves peace, and he's learning to trust God's command even when it's hard. So repentance for Abram and repentance for us looks like new obedience where we had first disobeyed. Uh, Second, it it looks like returning to the altars he first built. So um, look with me again at chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. What habits of worship have you abandoned that you need to return to? What 
altars, so to speak, of thanksgiving and sacrifice had you built by God's grace that you've walked away from that you need to go back to? Let me give you an example. Um, I guess it was about 10 years ago now, I was really getting into Reformed theology. Uh, I was what you would call a Reformed bro. And really, you know, wanted the, I had a coffee mugs with John Calvin on them and stuff like that. Now, don't, I still love Reformed theology and love John Calvin for the record. However, I had some repenting to do. And so I was, uh, I was deep in that world and I, I thought a lot about it and I read a lot about it. And I had this friend who was much, much smarter than me named Josh, and he was a Hebrew linguistics expert <laughs> uh, studying at Stellenbosch University, sharp guy. And one day after dinner, uh, I remember this vividly, we're having a conversation and I'm talking about B.B. Warfield, like all these big names from the reformed world in like early 1900s. And Josh had studied the Hebrew Bible enough to know it's really complicated. And if someone's making a reductionist simplistic statement about something this complex, be aware, it takes humility. And what he did in that conversation was take my theological rug and just rip it out from under me. And I'm telling you, I was shooketh, like <laughs> down to my absolute core. And I felt like I was losing my faith in some sense, but I still intellectually believed in the gospel. So by God's grace, what he helped me do in that time was return to the altars that I had built at first. I read the Gospels for like a year. I just sat in the Gospels because I, I realized I'm so thankful. I realized that my faith isn't from an intellectual ascent to a complex theological system. It's because of Jesus. So, hmm get near Jesus, return to the altar where you just lift your hands and say, I don't understand it, but I love you and I trust you and all I have is yours. So my question is, what altars do you need to return to? What are we trusting in? That's not just Jesus that we need to get rid of. Anyway, all right. So Abram's repentance uh, was risky. <laughs> And he was vulnerable before God to come home with his tail between his legs, as it were. He had to trust in God's kindness and trust in God's faithfulness and that he wouldn't be punished for turning back. And his repentance was costly. It cost him a relationship with Lot, whom he loved. But because he had experienced the character of God, because he had tasted the faithfulness of the Lord, he could do it. He knew that God was safe. <laughs> um, number two, Lot's self-interest. This will be briefer because um, it's, I don't know, it's less fun to talk about. Lot's self-interest. Let's read again from verses 8 through 13. And then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will take the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. 
in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they had separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, which while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. My allergies won't cooperate today. This story scares me. Abram's on a beautiful journey back to God. And his lack of faith, his small faith, he's not being punished for it. God's not chiding him. It is a beautiful redemption story. But nonetheless, his bad decisions and faithlessness influenced his nephew, didn't it? What's Lot doing but what he learned from his uncle? He's just going in Abram's footsteps. When things got hard, Abram went to Egypt, plenty of water. Now when things get hard, Lot goes to the Jordan Valley, plenty of water. But then he likens it to the garden of the Lord. Did you catch that? Not weird. (laughs) Even though uh, this area was related to Sodom and all the sin against the Lord that was there, Lot would have known that this was a place of ill repute. And he looked at it and said, that looks like Eden to me. Lot chose the garden without God. Give me ease and comfort. I'd rather have security than God. What an easy, appealing, and dangerous choice. And I think I've made that choice before myself. So those sort of ominous parenthetical statements resonate through my mind like warnings. That Lot chose the place that was about to be destroyed. Lot went and set up camp in the midst of the cities that the Bible says were full of wicked, great sinners against God. And if you know Lot's story, then you'll know it doesn't go well for him at all. It ends in disgrace, alone in a cave, bereaved, and taken advantage of by your own family. But in this story, Abram's humility, even though he's the social, he's got the social upper hand in the family hierarchy, he takes the low position and says, you choose, I'll defer to you. Abram's humility is contrasted with Lot's self-interest. Lot chose to his own advantage and to his beloved uncle's disadvantage. When we choose to grasp after what is good for ourselves, I dare say we inevitably disadvantage someone else. And this should be a sober warning. Lot wanted the garden, and he wanted it without God. And that's not possible. There is no paradise without Jesus. The way back to paradise isn't self-reliance. It's not self-interest. It's not self-protection. Turns out we get the garden through the wilderness. That's the way this is designed by God in all of his wisdom. Lot chose the garden without God, but Abram chose God without the garden. 
And immediately then, it said, it, it underlines for us that the Lord said to Abram after he had separated from Lot, because we needed that to happen before God says this. He says, I'm going to give you the blessing of Eden. He says, I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now remember Genesis 1.28, God blessed them in Eden. The man and woman he created and put in the garden, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And now God says, I'm going to make you as numerous as the dust molecules. It's the garden blessing. So I guess to sum that up, the surest way to lose the garden is to choose it. And the only way to get the garden is to lose it. (laughs) That didn't sound so corny when I wrote it. Jesus put it this way in Luke 9. 23 through 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Um, We Christianify that. Like it's really easy to just take meaning out of that. Let him deny himself and take up his torture device execution rack and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I don't know what it looks like for you, but do not choose the well-watered valley over God. It will cost you everything, and you'll gain nothing. The way to receive everything in Christ is to die with him. Point number three, God's astounding faithfulness. So Abram's journey back to God, Lot's self-interest. Now we'll end by looking at God's astounding faithfulness. The story is full of hallmarks of God's faithfulness that we've touched on. He afflicts Pharaoh when Abram's wife is taken. He doesn't punish Abram for his disobedience. Did you just notice that that's not in the text, that Abram comes back to Canaan and God doesn't shake his finger at him? He just welcomes him home. He rewards Abram's faithfulness in separating from his kindred by giving him the promise that the land will certainly belong to his offspring forever. The contrast is incredible. Abram says, you go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. God says, stand up here on this high place and look as far as you can, north and south and east and west. It's all going to you forever. God is so faithful to his covenant partners. Through God's faithfulness to his chosen family, they learned and we can learn that God is true to his word. God's committed to us even when we're not committed to him. But the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, is not about God's faithfulness to Abraham. It's God the Father's faithfulness to Jesus Christ, his son. Just to be very clear, looking at God's faithfulness to Abram is a, is a testimony and a witness, and we should pay attention, and it's the word of God. But God's faithfulness to Christ is what has saved you. The Father's faithfulness to Jesus isn't um, referenced in this passage. Of course, it's a narrative in the Old Testament, but it's, it's foreshadowed. So one of the ways that the Old Testament talks about Jesus is through what we call typology. 
essentially when something um, in God's sovereignty, he's designed something or someone to be like a shadow cast back in time by the person of Jesus himself. So that we can say, Abram is a type of Christ. I don't mean he's a kind of Messiah. I mean, he's constructed and designed by God's sovereign wise hand in the pattern of Jesus to point to what Christ is like. Jesus is the true and better Abram. So two ways that Jesus is foreshadowed in this text. First, we have to remember that God has promised that this land would go to Abram and his offspring. But in our text, he effectively gives away the land to Lot. Right? Take your pick. Abram looked not just to his interest, but to the interest of Lot. He did not grasp after what was rightfully his, but emptied himself. And he took the lower position of the servant. Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's faithfulness to Jesus is the gospel. And you can safely empty yourself. You can choose the road of humility. You can be radically generous because Jesus did all that for you. And in Christ, all things are already yours. He has already provided for your future. He has already given you in Christ all that you need. So we can just not cling desperately to our resources, time, emotional resources, money, whatever. We can empty ourselves like Christ did because he did it for us. Second, we need to think about the image. Um, this is the second point of sort of the typology. Um, I'm nearly done. Second, we need to think about the image of going down to Egypt. Uh, going down to Egypt as Genesis continues and as the rest of the Bible continues will accumulate symbolism. So the first time we hear the phrase, it's like, you know, may the force be with you. The first time you hear that in the movie, you're like, cool. By the 50th time you're hearing it in Star Wars, you're like, this means something. You're thinking of Skywalkers and, you know, Kenobis. Similarly, this phrase, down to Egypt, accumulates meaning for us as we go through the story. For instance, um, later in Genesis, uh, Jacob, when he hears about his son Joseph being dead, supposedly, says, uh, this sadness is so big, it will send my gray head down to Sheol, down to the grave. And the next thing that happens is it says he went down to Egypt because that's beginning to symbolize death. Or later, uh, when the people of God are enslaved in Egypt, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that that was a picture of our true exodus in which we were slaves to sin and dead in our trespasses. And the resurrection of Jesus teaches us that death is not greater than the living God, the God who raises the dead. So in other words, tie all this back together. Abram goes down to Egypt. It's like a death, which means that the repentance to go from Egypt back up into the way that God called him took resurrection power, not elbow grease. And it goes the same for you and I. If we are walking in sin and must repent, it takes the power of Christ and his resurrection in us to turn us from sin to God, which does a couple things. First, it breeds humility in us, right? That we, when we're looking at our way of sin, we should be able to say, I can't do this alone. In fact, I can't do this at all, but Christ in me. Christ in me can overcome this sin. And second, it should give us an incredible rearview mirror on our life where we can look back at all the repentance that Christ has led us in and go, whoa, I have experienced the resurrection power of Jesus time and again. And then we praise God for it. Thank the Lord. So I guess the sort of rhetorical question is how far gone do you have to be for the God who raises the dead to say, I can't work with that. If you're looking for some reason to trust God with your vulnerability, if you're looking for God to prove to you that he's safe, if you're looking for a reason to crack open in vulnerability to him, look to the cross. That's where he proved it. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to be called to do some things that feel really risky. And the question is, is it safe to turn back if we've wandered? Yeah. The resurrected Jesus agrees. Yes, absolutely. It's safe. He's calling you home. And he's not going to punish you for coming home. Let me end by reading the word of God from Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let me pray for us. Father, I praise you. I, I love you more just having preached the, that truth from the Bible. My heart is warmed to you more, and I thank you for that. It's a gift. It's a kindness. And I love you and praise you for your determination to bless your people, even when we're determined to walk against you. You are so good. You are so kind. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Christ. Amen. All right, we're going to go to the Lord's Supper now. Um, as you probably know, the way that this works is we'll come down the center aisles to take the bread and the cup and then go back to our seats on the outside. Um, bring your uh, 
bread and cup with you back to your seat. And we, we like to take it all together as an expression of our unity. Um, and so we'll wait and then I'll lead us in taking first the bread and then the cup. Uh, this is a meal that is for Christians because it points to the faithfulness of God in Christ to do what we could not do for ourselves, to pay for the sins that we could not pay for, to give us his righteousness, take the wrath of God we deserved. And essentially by eating it, you're preaching that as a sermon to your heart and to everyone around you. If you aren't comfortable preaching that sermon, then I invite you to please just remain seated without judgment. We respect your honesty in doing so and take this time to think about the gospel, the good news that Christ has been faithful to you and has died for you. If that's a sermon you can preach, if you're a baptized Christian, then I very much and very eagerly invite you now to come to the table.